I have been reading um, a book of sermons that are a hundred years old. They were written by uh, the Reverend Samuel Hoban, who was a superintendent minister of Wesley Methodist Mission in Sydney from 1915 to 1921. He was a Victorian minister primarily within the Methodist Church, but he did uh, a five-year stint um, in Sydney at the head church in New South Wales of the Methodist Church. Uh, the book uh, that he produced, it's the only one he produced, was of a, a series of 19 sermons entitled The Great Realities, The Great Realities of Life. And uh, it's a bit old school in its language and so on. However, I felt that I should use one of those sermons this morning. I'm not using it exactly as he presented. I've reworked it a little bit. Um, but I want to first of all acknowledge that that's what I'm doing. I'm, I'm borrowing. Um, actually, that means you have to work a little bit harder than creating from scratch, I've discovered sometimes. But I'm borrowing from that particular book of sermons. And the title of the sermon is this, The Final Analysis of Religion. That's what you would have said a year, uh, hundred years ago. Today we would tend to say, uh, The Final Analysis of Christian Faith. So let's turn to Luke 7. I'm going to uh, read from verse 36, but our focus verse is verse 47. So, Peter, I'd be happy if you didn't put that up uh, as we read through it. Just leave the focal focus uh, there, the verse we're going to focus on. This is in a chapter in Luke's Gospel. And by the way, today I think is what I call uh, a standard fair sermon. You know, it's great to have a banquet every now and then, but you don't want to have a banquet every meal. It's not good for us. But you want good, solid food. And I think today this is what this sermon should produce, as we get most weeks here uh, within our church. So it's, it's something that will hopefully feed your soul. It will build a bit of spiritual tone and give you a little bit of energy for the week ahead. So let's pray. Lord, before I start reading, I just want to commit this time to you. I know that I'm feeling a little rusty, but Lord, I'm sure that with your touch, um, you can bring life to these words into the hearts and the minds of those who are listening. Father, may it be a proclamation, but it may it also be an invitation. May it be a word, but may it also, Lord, have rhythm. And may it also, Lord, be a song that we can celebrate. We'd ask that in Christ Jesus, who is the living word, who breathes life upon our souls. And for that, Lord, we are eternally grateful. Amen. So this is said in Luke's Gospel where there are a number of healings there, um, in this chapter. And we get to this place, the Pharisees, of course, are doing their business and uh, criticizing and finding fault and all those sorts of things. And we read that one of the Pharisees in verse 36 asked Jesus to eat with him. And so he went into the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that she was 
that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him, at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and when and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I've got something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two That's all right in a minute. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he cancelled the debt of both. None. Now which of them would love him more? And Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he cancelled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Pretty good conversion experience, don't you think? And uh, yeah, if you could just turn on number eight, that would be really helpful. Just over there, number eight. Thanks, Paul. It would be helpful for me, given uh, the fact that my eyes aren't what they once were. I want you to think about one thing as we start this sermon. What one thing captures the heart of the Christian message? What one thing? The text for today, thanks Peter, uh, for this sermon is simply, she loved much. She loved much. And the value of those three words are that they reveal the purpose of Christ's ministry. Jesus, of course, adopted a revolutionary approach to the religious beliefs and customs of his day. His attitude to the woman washing his feet was a direct violation of the conventions of polite society and an entire repudiation of of the religion of his time. 
Yet in this act, we hear a chiming of the bells, which ultimately rang in a new era of time and a rebirth of humanity. What we describe as love is differentiated in Greek by various words. We have devalued the word love so much that it means something very little in our society today. For example, in the Greek New Testament, you can find the word phileo used to describe the love that has a general attraction to either people or things that human beings can have. Or Philadelphia, love for relatives and friends. Or Sturge, love for parents and children. Or Eros, the love which wants to have or to take possession of something in a sexual way. Or Agapeo, which was originally meant to honour or to welcome. But it was used in the New Testament to speak of the love of God. Or the way of life that is based on the love of God. In particular, one characteristic of Agapeo, which is a sermon for another day, I would think, is the fact that in Paul's understanding and writing, he sees an element of the love of God is that the love of God is an electing love. Good Calvinists would agree with that, wouldn't they, Gary? Amen. But one of the first things that Jesus aimed at in his ministry was simplification. Religious practice in his day and age, as we could say in our day and age perhaps too, had become a thing of endless commandments and prohibitions. Its statutes were numbered by the hundreds. And their burden crushed the spirit of people. Have you ever seen how too many rules and regulations just crushes the enthusiasm for life? In the midst of this, Jesus simplified faith by insisting that it consisted in one thing, and that is love. The love of God. Here is one of the many evidences of his greatness. The woman's sense of being forgiven in turn expressed itself through her in an act of expressing love. A loving act. And it's interesting, the great are always, are always simple. Great, the greatest scientists are men like Newton, who showed how one law, gravitation, links up 10,000 other facts and forces in nature which appear to be disconnected and unrelated, but are actually held together. It was said of the Duke of Wellington that the key to his success in defeating Napoleon was the simplicity of his strategy. And the greatest spiritual teacher that the world has ever known is the one who has shown that strange, baffling, 
sorry, who has shown us that strange, baffling and complicated as the interpretation of the doctrines of religion may be, that there is one fundamental principle, one sovereign passion, one indispensable need in life. And that is love. And I want to suggest and, and proclaim to you today and preach to you and, as Don Cox said to me, sermonize to you that faith in its last analysis is expressing love. Is expressing love. So let's talk a little bit about this love that we read about in this passage today. And the word that is used for love in verse 47 is the agapeia, love. First thing that we could say is love is indefinable. Now you can look up the dictionary and it says it's a particular emotion. But in many ways, love is indefinable. And we see that in the point that you could raise. What is love? And that is a question that's more easily asked than it is answered. Recently, a 14-minute sermon on love at a royal, royal wedding, which drew a lot of public exposure and response, said a lot about what love does and why we need it. And similarly, in the Apostle Paul's eloquent chapter on love, in 1 Corinthians 13, we search in vain for definition. He also tells us what love does, but not what love is. Love is not indefinite, but love is indefinable. It's not the vagueness of a confused mind. It's the breathless wonder of a listening and a learning heart. And we need to recognize that there is knowledge that begins where definition ends. And that's the deepest and the holiest knowledge of all. We can't get near to definition of love, the love of God, other than to say that love is a comprehensive disposition and not a single emotion. That's actually a very profound statement, I believe. Love is a comprehensive disposition and not a single emotion. You know how people talk about being positive? Got to wake up every morning. Carol King used to sing with a smile on your face and show the world how much you love them. I don't think she was talking about the love of God. But... So much of New Age thinking says, for example, you've got to be positive. You've got to be positive. Christian thinking doesn't say that. Christian thinking simply says, you can be loving. You can be loving. You can be loving. Love is a comprehensive disposition. It's at the very center and heart of life, or it can be. It's not a single emotion. 
Love is a disposition that is generic and inclusive of everything that belongs to life and being. There isn't anything beyond the realm of the love of God. Or beyond our own lives in being a loving blessing to others. It is not simply a love of things and persons that are good. Rather, the love of God is a disposition that characterizes the whole of our life. And all who stand in any way related to it. Another way of putting that is to say, when people think of you, do they think of you as being a loving person? Love, therefore, is not a mere emotion of sexual attraction symbolized by a mischievous boy of winged and beautiful shape who, piercing the human heart with his arrow, sets every nerve tingling while he leaves the moral nature unchanged. I'm hoping you've all heard that story. See, love doesn't leave us unchanged. Love doesn't besot us just with one person. Love affects every aspect of who we are. Second point, love is a principle. Love is one of the most abused words in our language. But shall we cease to cherish it because sensualists have tried to link it up with vice? To apprehend its noblest and holiest relationships, we have to nail love to Christ's cross. We need to entwine it in his crown. We need to consecrate it in a union of our hearts with his. We need to enshrine it in our homes. To translate it into character and make it vocal in service for others. Not just for what we can get. Love is a principle that is not subject to change or caprice. A policy, a policy changes with changing conditions, but principle is inflexible. And it's undeviating. And you may or may not have picked this up, but in recent uh, weeks, uh, on a number of occasions, uh, Andrew, our senior pastor, has um, preached and brought out an excellent point again and again and again. (laughs) And it's simply this, that we are defined by truth. The truth of God helps to define and determine who we are. Not the whims and the vagaries of life. And love, the love of God, is defined by the Scriptures and what they say God has done in history. So we are defined when it comes to love, not by policies that change every now and then, depending on the loudest voice or the general populace, But love is defined by principles that are true and that are eternal. 
And those principles are the very things that help us to discover who we are. They define who we are as human beings before God. That's a value of truth, as Andrew has so, as pointed out so well. The truth will help you discover who you are. A policy changes with changing conditions, but principle is inflexible. It's undeviating. Take, for example, the principle of truthfulness. The truthful person is truthful under all circumstances. Whether they're with other people or whether they're by themselves, they're truthful. The love upon which Jesus insisted was the defining center of Christian faith and wasn't limited or personal just to him. The love of God is not limited just to Christ. It flows to all of us through the cross. It leaps over all the narrow and the domestic relationships that life can bring. It created a brother in every man and a sister in every woman or the potential for it. It entered every avenue of life and sanctified it. It was sympathy when it met the suffering, compassion when it met the, met the fallen, sacrifice when it met the poor. In Jesus' attitude to the woman, he teaches Simon the Pharisee that the purpose of his ministry was to create a new spirit, a new character, and a new order in life. To redeem something that had been lost. Yes, amen. And so the third point we could say is, out of this passage, we can find that Christ's gospel is for a tragic world. You could use the term fallen. Jesus found the religion of his time hard, relentless, implacable, unforgiving. Its attitude to the woman in the story was cynical, contemptuous, and intolerant, as you see in Simon's reaction to her behavior. Simon expressed a form of piety without pity, without pity, sanctity without sympathy. It had no place for mercy, no hope for the fallen, no room for a second chance. It was because of this that Christ's message was for, for a fallen and tragic world. It was for the dishonored and the disinherited. And Jesus demonstrated the true spirit of Christianity in his attitude to the weak and the downtrodden. What did it mean when Jesus took a child in his arms and made that child the symbol of his kingdom? By that act, Jesus asserted that the claims of frailty and the honor, <coughs> sorry, by that act, he asserted the claims of frailty and the honor that men and women should pay to innocence. We live in a time of lawlessness. 
what is the very thing that is being attacked? Innocence. The innocence of life is being undermined. What did it mean that a sinful woman was welcoming his presence? It meant that the dark night of despair has passed for the wrongdoer. And that an era of hope had dawned. And this new spirit of faith that she had was to teach the lowly laborer that he had a soul. And he wasn't just the dregs of society. That the needy child, that she was a child of God. The sinful woman, that she might be cleansed and redeemed. This class of people crowded to Jesus' ministry because he gave them hope. So the broad difference between the Pharisee and Jesus in relating to this woman was that one viewed her with compassion and the other with contempt. Jesus inflicts no penalty on her and on the strength of her penitence. And so he says to her, go in peace, your faith has saved you. Indeed, the New Testament Greek word for saved here derives from sozo, which according to Brown's New Testament Dictionary of Theology is always used in the New Testament of the whole person. It was the woman's faith that made Christ's saving power effective. D. Hill, a scholar, writes this, that faith that made her well is the expectant admission by reason of her presence and action that only Jesus can deal with her condition. In other words, she saw in Jesus something that would heal all the needs that she had that she had not seen or found in anyone else or in any rule or regulation. It's the words of Jesus which heal her soul, not the woman's actions or faith. See, faith has to be able to take what Jesus is offering and what Jesus is speaking and, and receive it and apply it. But faith will not create the salvation. That's something that God offers to us. We cannot earn ourselves. But it's faith that makes Christ's saving power effective. Of course, a Pharisee of Jesus' day would be curious to know, aha, uh -huh, if she's forgiven, what becomes of justice? And in answer to this inquiry, Jesus, in effect, in this passage, says this, love is the only true justice. See, it's love that brings the awareness of the need of forgiveness. It's love that brings justice. This woman's forgiven and given another chance. 
Remember that the main object of justice is not punishment. The main object of justice is to reclaim a person's place in life and society. You don't want people just being recidivists, going again and again and again to jail for crime after crime after crime. You want them to be reclaimed in their moral character and their um, capacity to contribute to society. If the father of the prodigal son had dismissed him with some bitter word of reproach, then he himself would have been unjust to the boy's possibilities. And the same principle operates with this woman. Jesus evidently saw that her past was not the chief factor about her, but rather her present and her future. Not the mechanical punishment of her sin, but her deliverance from the sin. The woman is to have a new chance because she's capable of a new chance. The forgiveness of sin is not an act of grace only in our lives. It is also an act of justice. Most of us don't see that. Most of us are too quick to point the finger and to point out what's wrong rather than to say, this person can be different. This person can, can, can have hope. This person can reclaim their place in society. This person can become a loving person. I'm going to uh, just... know what? Forgiveness of sin as an expression of love is not just an act of grace. It's also an act of justice. What point are we up to? Four? Okay. Got that many, have we? Okay. The new spirit that Jesus puts into religion or to faith is evident here. Jesus didn't break the bruised reed, nor did he quench the smoking flax. Here we see love and gentleness combined together. That is why we need not despair for our own sin. For it is written that he, Jesus, is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Sin doesn't have the last say in life. This must be number five. There's a new type of character that's released in the Christian faith. You see, Jesus also came to form a new character. There's a striking difference as you read this passage from Luke 7 between the character of Simon and this woman who's a sinner. Simon was sound in orthodoxy. He was rigid in morality and he was highly respectable in life. Yet Christ rebukes him 
for his judgment of this sinful woman. What was his condemnation? Simon was a man without a heart. His morality was a cold, unattractive thing because there was no love in it. He never understood the moral significance of the woman's tears. He failed to recognize that goodness doesn't consist merely in the absence of badness. He was one who never knew any deep penitence because he never knew any great passion. We make a mistake if we think of passion as unbridled lust, as an ungovernable temper, as an enslaving habit. They're fruit of passion. Bad fruit. But passion, when rightly directed, is a quality of character to be admired. Better to be a person who is passionate about God and life than to be one who feels too little. Show. Better to have your arms in the air, standing on a chair, and worshipping God than being one of the frozen chosen with no sense of passion in life. You know, Jesus regarded the woman more favorably than the heartless Pharisee. The Pharisee's judgment was of her was, she sinned much. You can read it. It says it. Jesus' judgment of her was, she loved much. The real son was not the prodigal, but the penitent one. And Christ is teaching this Pharisee that there is no equivalent in life for the love of God and the forgiveness that is offered through him. And the final analysis of conduct is character. And the noblest character is the one that is inspired and controlled by love, the love of God. If you're thinking, that's the kind of faith that I want to express and to be associated with, remember this. Remember that the test of a true love is the length to which it will go. And God himself has put this to the test. A scholar W.M. Close said, it would have been easy for God to have given the world an assurance of his love in letters of light in the heavens, white as the pillar of cloud by day and radiant as the pillar of fire by night, saying, I love the world, I love you all. But this would not have cost him anything to do that. The length to which God's love carried him was that he gave his only begotten son 
Or in a similar manner, we can think about Jesus and we can ponder how Jesus may have contented himself with those assurances of love which found expression in his tears at Lazarus's tomb. His lament over Jerusalem. His practical care for the 5,000 who hungered. Those demonstrations of love, however, would not have cost him anything. In addition to this, his love went the length of laying down his life as a ransom for all. Friends and foes alike. Jesus died for his foes as much as he died for his friends. And his foes were all around him as he was dying. Turn to someone and say, this is his final page. Praise the Lord, I heard that. (laughs) You see, the woman in this instance might have given Christ the assurance of her love by washing his feet with her tears and wiping them with the hair. But she supplemented this act of love by going the length of breaking over him her box of precious ointment. This was the dumb symbol of a poured out heart. Something of great value to her financially. It was the swift, spontaneous act of a woman whose love knew no bounds. Remember, she heard he was at Simon's house. She grabbed the alabaster jar, probably representing a lot of her savings. And she rushed and bang, it cost her. It cost her more than being rejected. It cost her more than the shame of the men's scorn and Simon's disgust, it cost us something. And the question for us is this. To what length are we prepared to go to express the love of God? An empty canvas can become a great work of art. A grain of wheat can become a loaf of bread. Black coal can become a flashing diamond. A small baby can become a sage. Yet neither nature nor art know any change to compare with the transformation of a sinful woman into an angel of light. Such is the ministry of divine love. And that love that God sheds abroad in the human heart that can permeate the whole of Christian faith and life and transform the order of a society. That's religion in its final analysis. Amen.